Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hack. My name is Dr. Kit Chapman and I'm joined today by Zach White. Zach, we've got a fantastic guest lined up. Who do we have on the show? Oh, this is going to be stellar because today we are talking about possibly the coolest mausoleum, as far as I'm concerned, at least, and people can fight me about this, in all of history. Because we are going to be discussing the terracotta warriors of Emperor Qin Shi Huangdi. To talk us through this, frankly, mind-blowing topic is Marcos Martinon Torres, who is Professor of Archaeological Science at Cambridge University, and has a particular interest in metalwork and ceramics across the globe from the ancient to the modern period. So, you know, Marcos and and Kit are just going to get on like a house on fire with all the sciencey stuff. And uh, he's the ideal person to help us understand the scale of the terracotta warriors and their creation. He's written over 150 articles and book chapters on topics related to his specialism. And folks might know that he featured prominently in the Channel 4 documentary, on the building of the Terracotta Army. He also has recently received a European Research Council grant, which is an incredible achievement because those things are like gold dust, to look at states where there wasn't the centralised control that we would associate with the Terracotta warriors and the first Chinese empire. Marcos, it's brilliant to have you on. I've been looking forward to this for absolutely ages. Great to see you. How are you doing? I'm very well, and thank you for having me. I'm very excited to to join you here. I'm very fond of your podcast, so I'm very honoured to be now uh, participating from the other side. Oh, that's a ringing endorsement. I'm going to have to be honest. I could talk to you for hours today uh, because (laughs) this is one of the things sort of on my bucket list to go and stand face-to-face in front of a terracotta warrior. Um, So there's just a slight hint of jealousy that, you know, you get to... (laughs) It's, it's, It's worth a visit, that's for sure. Let's start by giving our listeners a bit of context then to the creation of the Terracotta Warriors. These figures guard the necropolis, and it is an absolutely vast complex, of China's first emperor, Qin Shi Huangdi. So tell us about his life, first of all, and his significance in China's history. Sure. Of course, uh, this has to be a much abbreviated history of, of, of China, because I think to understand the first emperor, we need to go back at least some 500 years uh, before he was born. So let's say we are in, I don't know, the mid 700s BC. And at that time, of course, China does not exist at all, the China we know today. Instead, what we have is 100 or 150 uh, small uh, polities, uh, noblemen and their families, uh, little princes, each with their own territories, uh, their boundaries constantly moving through alliances, through bribes, through competition, a little bit of war, of course, as well, though it's highly ritualized. So it's a time of fragmentation, also a time, of course, for that very reason of, of diversity, lots of interesting uh, cultural developments, artistic developments of, of various kinds evolving in different uh, directions. But progressively, some of these lords are going to be accumulating more power, accumulating more land, uh, as I said, uh, developing alliances with one another, until progressively we have uh, smaller numbers of larger states. So that's where we fast track to the warring states period, where we have then mostly seven states, which are constantly 
raging war with one another because they are competing for uh, domination. Uh, so they are competing for resources, they're competing for people, they're competing for wealth. And it is in this context of, frankly, uh, constant violence and, and complete distrust to each other in a world where if you want to get something, you really have to fight for it more than uh, negotiate or more than collaborate or agree. This is the world in which uh, little Zheng is born, the person who would uh, become first emperor of China. So he was born in 259 BC, but at the tender age of 13, uh, his dad, who was the king of Qing, uh, dies. And so Qing one of these, was one of these seven states that was by then quite prominent, but still one of several. And so at this young age, he becomes the king of Qing himself, uh, and so having grown in this world, of course, he does what he's learned. Uh, that is, of course, with help of, of other mentors and administrators, embark very successfully, as it turned out, on military campaigns against all the warring states. And so progressively, uh, he begins to uh, basically defeat all the other states until in 221 BC, he completes uh, all of these uh, wars, he completes the unification, therefore, of China, and he decides that now, because he is the only ruler of all of this massive span of land, uh, he should call himself the first Augustus Emperor of China. And indeed, the name China is supposed to derive from the name of his dynasty, Tin. And so that's, in a, in a nutshell, him and why he is important, because he is the one who achieved or at least led the unification of China as a single political entity and, and, and something of a size in terms of population and indeed uh, square mileage, if you like, that was almost unprecedented in the world. But it's quite a short-lived dynasty, isn't it? Because the country after his death kind of soon disintegrates into warring states and, and until you have the, the rise of the Han dynasty. So why is it so important in China's history? Is it just that that first moment in time when you have a notion of, of China as a state, or is there more to it than that? That's a very good question, because not everyone realizes that for all the weight and significance we, do, we give to this first emperor and the Qin dynasty and whatnot, it was very shortly. And, and so he became emperor in 221, but he died in, in 210, and the second emperor of Qin only lasted there for three years, and then the whole thing collapsed. And so in many ways is the succeeding Han dynasty, uh, which was of course much more, uh, much longer lived, uh, that consolidates a lot of the historical processes that, that we see indeed in, in China today. But I suppose the great uh, claim to fame of the first emperor, and, and by extension the Qin dynasty, is the unification itself, so the first uh, ones to create a large enough uh, unified uh, political entity that resembles what's uh, China today. And also, and also importantly, it is at this point that they set in motion, or at least more visibly so, uh, loads of uh, processes that will have ramifications to the present. And so we see under Qin, even before the unification, but of course much more uh, enhanced uh, after unification, um, the standardization of script, a form of writing that is almost, you know, it's quite similar to what we see in Chinese script today. Uh, the standardization of weights and measures, even politics and philosophy are unified or, unified or progressively rolled out in ways that were unprecedented. Even the width of the road so that uh, all chariots could travel across the empire. So there's a legal, philosophical and logistical system that gets unified and standardized now. And of course, it will evolve further and it will become even more prominent and visible under the hand. But it is now that it's set in motion historically visibly. And I think that's why uh, that together, of course, uh, with the Terracotta army and, and the whole material legacy um, that gives this dynasty and this emperor uh, that particular prominent role in the history of China and indeed of, of the broader world. Yeah, that, that standardization is, is quite an incredible legacy, isn't it? But then he's also, I think it's quite an understatement to say that he's a controversial figure. So how is he remembered in Chinese popular culture? Is there a sense of people coming to terms 
with his complexities, as we've seen with other historical figures, particularly lately? I think uh, that's another good question, because uh, up until quite recently, you could argue that the public perception of the first emperor, and, and to some extent also the more scholarly literature, was quite polarized, uh, because on the one hand, and something we still see today, uh, there is a lot of, allegedly a lot we can admire of a person who was so successful and who managed to get a whole empire with 20 to 30 million people behind him. And so he demonstrates what a large country can achieve uh, when everyone works together. And that is, of course, something that can be used today uh, to enshrine him as a role model. And you can certainly see a lot of celebrations of, of that within China and, and beyond. The flip side of this is that, of course, in order to achieve that, you need to suppress diversity. You need to suppress the individual. The individual doesn't matter. What matters is what you can do to serve the state. And that, coupled with the historical records uh, describing how ruthless with, he was with all the adversaries, uh, how you know the, the extremely gruesome punishment to anyone who did uh, anything that was not coherent with his philosophy and, and his law, uh, if you read these stories about him burning inappropriate books or indeed burying alive some scholars that he was dissatisfied with, all of which we have to take uh, with a pinch of salt because they are later historical records. We cannot take them at face value. But of course, um, there is certainly some truth uh, to that, to the fact that you must have been very ruthless and, 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 and discriminatory in order to achieve that. And so there's these two sides and both of them are... Um, as I said, polarized, but often perhaps exaggerated. And I think as historians and archaeologists, what we are trying to do today, at least what I try to do, but surely to the others too, is to, rather than passing moral judgments, um, positive or negative, which is tempting, but perhaps uh, anachronistic and inappropriate, what we try to do is simply to assess that person and his world in context. So we try to understand what that world was like and why things turned out to be the way they were. Uh, you know, he's an extremely interesting, controversial, appealing, interesting figure. Um, but rather than judging him, what we need to do is assess him and his world in the context. And, and you being a historian, I'm sure you can, you can relate to this. Absolutely. I empathise entirely with that. So let's start talking about the terracotta army it, itself then. I mean, it's located just outside the modern day city of Jean. So give us a sense of where that sits within China today, but also significantly where it sat within relation to the first empire. Sure, so Xi'an today is, well, it's one of the oldest uh, cities in China and, and it sits, uh, it's the capital of the Shanxi province, which now sits roughly in the center, north center of China though at that time, the Qin period, it would be towards the west of China because much of Eastern China today was not part of China then, but it's bang in the center of the most prominent uh, historical developments of the classical civilizations. The Shang, uh, of course, developed pretty much in what's today the Shanxi province. And Xi'an itself is one of the great four ancient capitals of China. So it was the capital already in the Western Zhou period before the Qin. And then during the Qin period, it is the capital of, of the state, then the empire. And it's not far, it's about maybe 40 or so kilometers from Lingtong, which is the location where he chose to build his, his mausoleum. So was that a deliberate move on his part, as far as you know, we can tell from the available material that he wanted to be specifically located there or was were there other concerns that affected the precise location? Well the region where we find the, the capital and, and his tomb is the heartland of the Qing state so of course during his uh, reign uh, the land must expanded dramatically particularly towards the east and to the south of what would become the empire. But of course, Xi'ang is the very core of, of the Qin state and therefore where he was born and raised, if you like, and where eventually he would come to be buried. Even though 
he did make the point that we know again through historical records, he made the point of traveling across the empire uh, several times to, in a way, I suppose, increase his awareness of, of uh, you know, all of the new people under his uh, rule, but surely also as a propagandistic uh, activity to assert his power, leaving Stella with, with the new uh, legislation, etc., and basically teaching people what an empire is. Because one of the fascinating things about this is that most of those 20, 30 million people didn't know what an empire was. So you can come and tell me you're an emperor, but unless you educate me in understanding what this means in practice to me, um, they wouldn't be familiar with, with such a figure. Uh, so the Terracotta Army dis discovery took place in 1974, and essentially it was a total accident. Talk us through the discovery and what was known about the Emperor's tomb before that point. Right, yes, uh, it seems it was a happy coincidence in, in a way. Uh, it happened to be a, a rather dry year in the Shanxi province. And so apparently some peasants were digging, trying to find a well, trying to find water, and they began to uh, dig up uh, what appears to have been broken pieces of statues. And uh, what happened next, of course, uh, we all know. Uh, first, they had sufficient uh, sagacity to realize that this was unusual and interesting. And so they reported it to the local heritage authorities, who in turn launched what has become uh, one of the largest, longest-lived and more interdisciplinary um, research projects on what is, of course, today one of the most uh, renowned archaeological sites in the world. Uh, before that discovery, and quite surprisingly, there was very little memory of um, there being uh, the tomb of the first emperor there, let alone terracotta warriors. We knew, of course, you know, that it being an imperial capital, uh, uh, several tombs of early emperors and kings and princes were known, um, but there was no historical record of any terracotta army and any written sources that we know of, uh, no memory of it. And so it was a, a shocking uh, discovery that then led to, of course, uh, much broader surveys, an ever-growing uh, perimeter of what we think is the mausoleum uh, site complex. And basically, uh, here we are uh, for almost five decades later, and still uh, asking questions, making discoveries, and having a lot of fun, frankly. That's fascinating because the emperor isn't just an emperor of China. He is the first. He's one of the most important. So was there any idea of, uh, was there a mystery about where his tomb might be located? Were people wondering about this, looking for it? As far as I'm aware, there was no active search um, for, for the tomb, to be, to be honest. Um, I may have missed it here, but it, it really was one of these discoveries, as is often the case in archaeology, but in science generally, that start with an accidental discovery, but then grow into something bigger. So there is the accident, but then there's then, of course, also the uh, realization that this discovery is important. And then there is all the legwork that follows, because I think that's important to emphasize in any serendipitous discoveries. You need the, the, the lucky accident, but then you need people uh, with the intelligence and the resources to realize that this is important, then run with it. And Absolutely. before and before you and your team started your specific work on analyzing the warriors, what was kind of the the consensus, if there was one, about how they were created and the the specific techniques in their creation? Because as is going to become clear, you actually ended up rewriting our understanding of the the construction of these and, and their significance, particularly when it came to weaponry. Um, but I don't want to spoil that for folks. So give us a sense of the consensus before you came uh, to the party, as it were. So, I mean, there's always been uh, several hypotheses and, uh, and several theories about how the Terracotta warriors, but also more broadly, the, the entire mausoleum uh, was constructed. Uh, because I think it's, it's worth emphasizing how, you know, this huge site uh, was built in a very short time span, possibly 10 years, maximum three decades, really, um, using constructive elements that are totally unheard of in their scale, in their sophistication. Uh, but then, of course, at the center, as in terms of, of, of our 
popular prominence today. We've got these thousands of Terracotta warriors uh, that are very peculiar in their style. And so the question was, <clears throat> how was labor organized to, to produce that? And one of the most popular theories was that there was um, somewhat a, a very large factory, if you like, uh, organized in specialized units, each of them with their molds, perhaps, producing um, modules for the various parts of weapons. And, and my friend and colleague on this project, Andy Bevan, uh, uses, I think, very effectively uh, <clears throat> the image of Mr. Potato Head. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, <laughs> Mr. Potato Head, where you have a set number. Uh, maybe you're, you're too young, but no, potato heads are still uh, around because my daughters uh, played with, with them. Um, so basically, you have a set number of body parts, uh, ears, noses, and legs. In, in the case of the warriors, could be, uh, you know, say, 10 types of heads, uh, five types of arms, uh, 15 types of torsos. So a set number of modules. But then you combine them in every possible permutation. And that leads to the, to the impression of a huge diversity. And so that was not the only, but a very popular uh, uh, um, theory was that it was a single centralized factory, but combining uh, their, their standardized parts in non-standard ways. Okay, go on then, put us out of our misery. So what <laughs> is the reality? How do, and how did you go about uncovering what the true story was? So the reality is that there is not a single uh, factory, but clearly there were several workshops operating in parallel. And this is something we are now uh, very confident about, uh, both in terms of uh, how the warriors themselves were produced, but also the weapons these, these warriors were carrying. And um, so basically a lot of the project that I've been involved with is trying to basically reverse engineer the Terracotta army and by extension, the broader mausoleum. So understand how raw materials, ideas, and people were brought together to create something so unique and so large and so sophisticated. And so what we've been trying to do is identify batches of things. So groups of artifacts, be them warriors or crossbow triggers or arrows, that were produced together in a single moment in time. And we recognize those because they can be very close in their chemical composition. So they may be metal that comes from the same crucible load, or they can be identical in shape. So there are two parts that come from the same mold. Or we also look at inscriptions that both the warriors and the weapons can have on their back sometimes, or various body parts, actually, um, and look at the inscriptions that might give us a name of a person or a place. Or, uh, or a number sometimes. And so by combining all of these strands of information, what we have found is indeed that we have batches, but also production groups, so series of artifacts, be them weapons or warriors, that were consistently made within a workshop, and they are consistently different from another group of warriors or weapons that were made probably in a different workshop. So they are to some extent mixed as they converge at the Terracotta army pit and then placed there. So those batches are sometimes mixed when you look at them spatially, because we've done a lot of spatial analysis as well, but you can still distinguish groups of uh, objects that were made together and separately from others. And so increasingly we have a, a, a clear impression that in spite of this strongly centralized uh, world uh, that we live in, the logistical organization was sufficiently decentralized to allow for several workshops operating in parallel. And surely they must have had very strong pyramidal uh, systems of supervision and quality control. And actually we have some information about that. So surely there would be sticks uh, for those who were not meeting the high standards expected. But at the same time, clearly there was a decentralization in potentially smaller workshops that were more or less autonomous and that allowed more versatility because if there is a breakdown in one workshop, the other one can continue to work and they are more adaptable perhaps in changes in, in the program because of course it's very hard to predict how the program is going to work when nobody's built a Terracotta army before. And so there are logistical reasons why, why they might have chosen to do this. Uh, but it is perhaps uh, paradoxical or at least unexpected to some extent 
that for such a strongly centralizing empire, we have a decentralized production system, it seems. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, what I find incredible about this as well is that because part of your technique was that you started to create molds based around things like arrowheads, didn't you? To try and work out the, the, the well, effectively, apologies for the kind of the spoiler here. <laughs> no um, but these are fully functional weapons. They're not ceremonial. This is a, mm-hmm. <laughs> the army is literally equipped to go to war, which is just staggering. Talk people through how you made that discovery, because it, when I heard about it, I would just have my mind blown. Yeah, so that's a, another of the strands of, of our scientific work. We've spent quite a lot of uh, time looking at, at the bronze weapons. And, and so while the warriors are made of clay and as such are arguably not real warriors, which is something you know worth uh, perhaps discussing, uh, the weapons are made of bronze. Uh, and they are true lethal weapons, as you were saying. And so when you analyze their chemical composition, for example, you find that they are selecting the optimum alloy, so the optimum uh, mixture of metals to optimize their properties so that if it's a blade and it needs to be hard, then you add more tin. If it needs to be tough so it doesn't break, you add less tin. So they are adjusting the composition of the metals, but also you put them under a, a, a microscope and what you see is that every one of the bladed items and let's not forget, for example, bladed items are the 40,000 arrowheads discovered so far. Every one of them has been sharpened using a rotary device. This is something that was quite uh, uh, challenging to discover and quite fun because to, to look at the surfaces of those weapons and find those kind of diagnostic policy marks, uh, we had to take molds, as, as you were saying, Zach, and so we used uh, dental impression materials, so the stuff that you used to take, uh, you know, when you go to the dentist to make impressions of your teeth, that's a polymer that basically takes up the surface of whatever you uh, push it against. And so we could take molds of these weapons and then take these molds to the microscope so that we didn't have to move or you know, potentially put the, the, the artifacts at risk. And when you put them under the microscope, you can actually see the very diagnostic parallel scratch lines that you get on kitchen knives when you sharpen them using a, a wheel, basically, or a lathe or, or something. And so that tells you, of course, that these are not just representations for, the, for, for symbolic purposes, but they are real lethal sharp uh, weapons that are made of optimal materials and uh, ready for action. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I mean, I think it's incredible, particularly at that state of, of, of sort of human civilization, that we're able to sort of fine tune the alloys, um, which mm. is incredibly complicated process that is not easy to do. Um, and also, I'm fascinated that there's actually a quality control process. You were saying that some were rejected because they wouldn't have been good enough. Yes, I mean, this is something that we can only tell by the absence of errors, if you like, uh, because what's being particularly challenging here, of course, is that there is no workshop. We haven't discovered any workshop remains. So everything 
that we know about the technology and the construction of these sites is through what we call reverse engineering. So working backwards from the finished object to understand ideas, designs, raw materials, uh, etc. And uh, what we find is that the standardization is extraordinary in the quality of every one of, of these items. Uh, in fact, as a, as a curiosity, uh, because we've calculated this, you can take any two of uh, the 40,000 arrowheads, for example, that have been discovered so far, and to our human eye, they're all identical. <laughs> because the, yeah, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's mind-blowing, because the, the spread of variability of their dimensions is lower than the threshold of our perception. It's, it's, it's something that's called the Weber fraction, so it's, it's the threshold below which we cannot tell apart differences in, in size. And so for that to happen, of course, there must have been some quality control, there must have been some standards that were shared across uh, the various uh, workshops. And we have some hints of that because some, some of the larger, some of the bigger weapons have longer inscriptions that say this item was made by artisan X under the supervision of Y and in the workshop of Z. And so there are up to four levels of uh, hierarchical supervision, if you like. And at the top of this pyramid is Lubuwei, who was uh, the chancellor or the prime minister or the first emperor. So in just four steps, you go from probably the real chap who did the work to the prime minister. So yes, you work wherever you like, you use your own methods, you use your own tools, but you better meet the standards. It's just staggering. And what a lot of people won't necessarily realise because of what we see from the terracotta warriors today is that they were painted. So mm -hmm. am I right in thinking that every single one of these warriors, despite the arrowheads being as far as we can tell, uniform, the, in, in terms of the, the perception of the eye. When they were created, these warriors would have all looked individual, or was there some kind of uniformity across them? Um, no, that's another very good point, because, you know, like a real army, we have seemingly warriors that on the surface look very similar, but they're all different, uh, but then carrying very standardised equipment. And so, yes, uh, we know, and, and, you know, there's been a, a rather impressive uh, scientific project in identifying all the many pigments that were covering all of these warriors. And there's many of them natural and artificial of multiple colors. And so we know for a fact that all of these warriors first, were first primed or coated with lacquer from lacquer trees. And then on top of that, they added uh, pigments of something the most gaudy, color combinations it's so when you see the digital reconstructions of what the warrior looked like it's it's just it feels wrong it's like when you now look at a medieval sculpture and we like them a uh, uh, color like stone or, or wood and occasionally when they are well preserved in, in their pigmentation they look awkward don't they and, and it's a similar thing with the terracotta army but yeah that's the truth they were all painted in painstaking detail and we we're talking about eyebrows we're talking about individual threads in their armor or robe uh, painted individually with with very intricate patterns and we don't know enough about every one of them to see you know if, if, if there's any groupings or patterns in their colors that's something we are hoping to analyze with more samples across a larger data set but there appears to be remarkable uh, diversity they are clearly not all uh, dressed in exactly the same color combinations and this, of course, is added to the other diversity, which is the very shape of, of the warriors themselves. And so not only they are wearing different uh, outfits, depending on their rank and depending on their function uh, within the battle formation, uh, but also there is remarkable variability in their facial features. So their noses, their cheeks, their ears, their hairstyles, um, they all appear to be different. And, and this is, again, something where we need to do more of because there's so many of them that until we have a large sample, we cannot be sure about making uh, any statement. But, but one of the other things that we're working on now is doing the geometric morphometrics, that is the, the shape comparison of all of these warriors to overlay uh, various features. We started with their ears. Now, of course, we're doing different body parts to compare their shapes directly. So we make 3D models of these warriors. And then basically we use clever computing to compare their shapes and see the extent to which um, 
they may or may not uh, be different. And so far, in a small sample, we just find no matches. We might in due course, but so far, every warrior that we've tried to systematically compare to another has turned out to be slightly different, at least. It, it's incredible. I mean, I've been very fortunate enough to, to see the terracotta warriors. Mm. You sort of step into this giant shed kind of uh, kind of thing, you walk around the top, you look down, and you can see everybody is different. Um, one of the obvious questions, though, is why are they made from terracotta? Why aren't they carved out of wood, for example? Um, that's another very good uh, question. And I suppose the short answer to me would be that they have first a lot of the raw material because we are in the lost plateau there's loads of very fine clay that's very suitable for this work there is of course a very long millennia long tradition of uh, making excellent pottery in china so that it's a technology and a material that they uh, master um they could have been using wood, yes, but that would be a hell of a, a, hell of a lot of, of wood uh, to source at the time. Funnily enough, there are other later terracotta armies with uh, wood components, like the, there's a famous Han Dynasty uh, terracotta army where the bodies were made of clay, but the arms were made of wood. And so, of course, they now have no arms because they've perished. <laughs> they were also dressed in real textiles, so they have perished too, and so they are naked warriors. But these ones are made of, of clay. And it was clearly a convenient material Perhaps what I find more interesting is, is or, or more difficult to explain, is why they are fake or why they are representations. So we're talking about real, proper weapons, uh, but the warriors are not. And are they really believing that these clay warriors are going to be alive in the afterlife to defend the emperor? And that is a fascinating question. It's something that, that we see in this moment that is marking a change really in the burial customs in China that, that we see to the, to the present day, but that must have meant a change on religious beliefs. And, and basically what happens is that until this period, when somebody important dies, a prince or a noble person of some kind, they will sacrifice people and animals and wealth generally to bury them with them. So they are buried with real horses, with real concubines or wives or uh, uh, servants, uh, etc. But of course, you know, we're living in a world of uh, warring states uh, where loads of wealth and loads of people are being uh, spared. And therefore, there is a changing philosophy. And Confucius is one that's in a way saying, just stop dumping wealth in tombs, stop killing things to put them in tombs. And possibly that's what we are seeing here, that because there are a few for example, real horses buried in the mausoleum, as well as terracotta army ones, as well as terracotta ones. And so we seem to be seeing that transition where some of the things are real, some of them are representations. You could argue that it's a clever saving exercise, but it requires a changing beliefs, really. You know, can you, you know, maybe hard to believe that somebody that you sacrifice into a tomb will be alive in the afterlife to live with you, to protect you or serve you, but a clay army, it is. Uh, I think that's one of the things that really shocked me as well, is that when you hear about the terracotta warriors, you think of them as single men, but there are horses, there are chariots. It is mm -hmm. a, a composite army, essentially. Um, yes, uh, and it is impressive, and it's, it's the kind of thing that you only get a sense of if you go there. There are amazing exhibitions around the world, uh, but going there, standing on the front of pit number one and seeing those thousands of warriors looking at you is overwhelming, but it's even more overwhelming, <clears throat> excuse me, if we tell you that that actually is a tiny army compared to the standards of the time. Uh, the real armies that, that Chinsi Wandi would have commanded uh, might have had hundreds of thousands of warriors, so several orders of magnitude more. Um, but yeah, and this, I mean, I, this all taps into something that I wanted to ask you, and perhaps this is an obvious question, but you're talking about this whole thing about not sort of dumping all of your wealth into your funerary complex, and yet it creates an entire army made out of terracotta. So there's a huge irony in the fact that okay, he's not killing people to to use them to defend him in the afterlife, but he is 
doing something on an entirely different scale to anything we can kind of wrap our heads around. So why is he driven to create this? Because as Kit's kind of alluded to, you've got the army and you've got not just soldiers, but you've got chariots, horses, etc. But you've also got a whole palace complex, which is sort of a mile from the army burial pit. So give us a flavour of what else has been found and why so much effort kind of goes into this. Yeah, so... so as you're hinting at, the Terracotta army is, is a relatively small and indeed an accessory component of a much larger complex. Uh, it just happens that it was uh, the area of the site that was first discovered, therefore more extensively excavated, and the one that's become the icon and the more famous. Uh, but that is just at the entrance, facing east, of something that's now mapped to be around 100 square kilometers. So it's, you know, it's larger than, I don't know, Cambridge, where, where I am, for example, all of which was built in a short time span to host the emperor in the afterlife. And so this whole funerary complex is centered around uh, an artificial mound that's shaped like a pyramid that has not been excavated yet, but we believe uh, that's where the emperor is buried. And based on the written sources and also our understanding of funerary customs at the time, he built for himself a whole uh, palace or he did a whole universe where he would continue to reign in the afterlife. It is well known that he thought he was in a way like a messiah. He was, uh, he had saved uh, China for posterity and he felt he was here to rule not just China, but the world and forever. And we know he was trying to extend his life in this world that he had alchemists working from him and all, for him and all the rest. But at the same time, perhaps not being very confident that that would work, he commissioned the creation of a whole underground empire where there are there is a palace, where there are uh, stables for the horses, where there are administrative offices, but also there are chariots beautifully created for him to travel around his world. There are pits that are increasingly being excavated with uh, musicians, with acrobats, with people to just entertain the emperor. Um, there are uh, water channels, kind of like in a park with, uh, with birds, just to you know be beautiful. And so it is a whole world with the expectation that you will live after death and you will be able to rule forever in this underground world. And so there is, you know, it's connected to the way you see death as a continuation of life, which is one that, um, you know, of course, with, with evolution, but one that, that, that persists to this day, where it is still common in China to make offerings in tombs of the sorts of things that you're expecting people to need in normal life. And you may offer them uh, food or cigarettes or money, uh, things that they might well need in their afterlife. It's interesting. One thing you mentioned was this transition from, uh, you know, actually killing people and burying them with them. It's probably worth mentioning, though, that there is a grim side to this. Many people did die building this tomb. So what do we know about the lives of the people who were working to create this, this wonderful underground world? Well, I'm very glad you uh, asked me this question, because I think that's one of the things that I believe our project is visualizing and is the mostly anonymous hundreds, thousands, millions of people who effectively with their hands creating what we see and admire today. And uh, again, given that we all work in <laughs> historical worlds, we know that history is often written about you know those big kings and pharaohs as if they could take credit for everything, but the world uh, is, is more than them. And we do know uh, a little bit about the workers. Um, there is uh, the historical records written by Sima Qian about 100 years after this. They talk about as many as 700,000 people uh, working on the construction of, of, of the first emperor's mausoleum, which, again, may or may not be true, but clearly there were thousands of people uh, working there. And the archaeology has indeed revealed a couple of cemeteries within the mausoleum site, so not too far from the very pyramid where the emperor is, with bodies of individuals that are thought to have been some of the artisans involved in the construction of the site. Uh, they are mostly uh, young men, but there's the occasional uh, uh, women and uh, children. Uh, some of them have obvious signs of violence or struggle, uh, often in shallow graves, communal mass graves. And um, so these are the people who, you know, 
gave their effort and in some cases probably their lives uh, for the creation of, of this. And a few of them uh, were actually a small number, <clears throat> but for a few of them, we have uh, their names. Uh, I think 18 to 20 of them, because somebody scratched on a broken ceramic shirt, they scratched uh, something like Luo from Dongwu. So a name and uh, where they come from, and in some case, even why they are there. And it's mostly deaths. So it's people, they are uh, uh, forced labor, conscripts, uh, uh, prisoners from war that were brought there to work uh, on the construction of, 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 of the site that we see today. Uh, we also have uh, some DNA, not a lot, but there's been some DNA uh, analysis of these mitochondrial DNA of, of a small number of, of the human remains that suggest that uh, they may, as, as it was thought, that the workers there were brought from the various areas of the newly conquered territories. So not just from the Shanxi province, from elsewhere. Uh, these analyses need further development because we only have mitochondrial DNA because that's something, so that informs only about the maternal line. And you compare that then to the distribution of mitochondrial DNA in the present, which of course may have changed, but there is sufficient diversity to suggest that yes, most likely people of different ancestries from potentially different regions were brought forcefully to work there. And we are now, I think, appreciating more the results of their work. I mean, one thing that's always puzzled me about the army and particularly its location is it's there to protect the emperor in the afterlife. That's its primary function. And yet the layout of the much wider complex means that the army is to the east of his tomb. Now, there are other pits where there are other um, concentrations of terracotta warriors. But taking pit number one, I believe it, it's mm -hmm. known as the, the main one that people know about, that's to the east. And yet to the west, you have um, a, a builder's graveyard. You have a pit of punished convicts to the northwest. There's a pit of mutilated skeletons just to the north. So, I mean, looking at this from somebody who spends a lot of time studying deployment of armies, it almost <laughs> feels like the army's in the wrong place to protect him from people who, if they, if they went they to the afterlife, would, would have a, an axe to grind, you know, they, they would potentially come back as vengeful spirits. So is there, is there another army somewhere? Uh, that would be a fascinating discovery, and maybe you know, people are certainly surveying the site and, and looking for things, and there's no signs of, of other army. Uh, I mean, the emperor had loads of uh, people who might well have an axe to grind, and, and you're right that the uh, people who were forced to work there might well come back in the afterlife, but you have to think about all the um, states that he defeated, and that's where he would have thousands or millions of, of people who might have an axe to grind. And so basically, if you look at the, at the map of the first empire, Xi'an broadly and, 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 and the Qing state is to the very west. And so in looking at the east, you are looking at where the enemies come from, where the other enemy states uh, come from. Well, that's how uh, the location of the army is understood. And then other areas around the mausoleum, they are also protected by, by um, uh, natural geography because there's Mount Lee, there's a mountain range, there's a river. So that is in a way the, the side of the mausoleum that's most exposed physically, but also the one where arguably, even though surely he would have enemies within the mausoleum site, where most of the historic enemies would be. And we've sort of touched on this in that there's this potential, maybe there's more armies, maybe people could find something. What else is out there, do we think? Because there are these stories of maps with rivers of mercury, all that kind of stuff. What else are archaeologists realistically expecting to find? Huh. It's, it's hard to be, it's hard to define what is to be realistic there because every discovery keeps uh, shattering uh, any sense of what should be realistic. I think, you know, uh, so now we can be actually, <clears throat> I don't know if wishful or unrealistic about what to expect, because who knows? So the survey continues. And at the moment, there's about 600 different pits that have been identified at the site, which are being excavated or recorded at different paces. So we will continue to see discoveries of, of all sorts. Sometimes, you know, it takes a while before we know uh, you know, the, the, the wider public knows about them after they're being studied uh, properly and conserved. We'll continue to see things. 
Of course, one of the key questions that you were alluding to is what exactly is inside the very pyramid where the emperor is buried, because again, there is a suggestion based on historical records, which you have to insist were written about, you know, over a century later, so uh, not to be taken at face value. But interestingly, so these, these, these are the sources that say, yes, the emperor was buried in a, in a representation of his whole world with rivers of mercury in permanent flow. And so that's one of the amazing things one might find in the pyramid. On the one hand, it seems absolutely crazy, and I would be the first person to be skeptical about it for historical and uh, natural law reasons. But then again, uh, there have been way before my day, some scientific analysis of the soil around that pyramid and the vapors emanating from the soil, and they show unrealistic, well, unrealistic, artificially high or naturally high um, levels of mercury, higher than the background. Does that mean there are rivers of mercury there? Absolutely not. However, <laughs> it is uh, tantalizing and it's fascinating and it's something that we certainly uh, need to be exploring further. And am I right in thinking that there's been a commitment that they won't open the the funerary mound itself? Well, I call it a funerary mound. It's a mountain in its own right, mm-hmm. frankly. But they won't open it until they are confident that science can physically preserve what they find inside. Yeah, that is, uh, unfortunately or not, that is the current uh, policy. Understandably, I think one has to be cautious and based on experience, it is true that it's so hard to predict what you may find on, on this site. And so, yes, the, the, the plan is not to excavate there until we can be confident that we have the means to preserve this for posterity. But how can you be confident about what you're going to find without um, exploring it? I mean, thankfully, we have increasingly better uh, remote sensing methods where you can use, you know, send uh, magnetic or electric signals through the ground and get a sense of what's in there. Uh, But of course, the longer we wait, the more it will become a a hot potato that nobody will want to deal with. Who's going to then have the courage uh, to say, okay, we're going to start excavating there this year. I I wouldn't be that person. Not that they would ask me, but I would not be, (laughs) I would not want to be the person now making that decision. Marcos, this has been just such a fascinating discussion. I know that our listeners are, are going to be, are going to, going to have loved this. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been utterly brilliant. My pleasure. It's been fun. And I'll continue to listen to you guys. Good work. You can help us at History Hack by joining us via Patreon. It takes quite a lot of effort and a lot of work of quite a big team now to keep us going. And so if you could donate as little as £3 a month, it would be massively appreciated by all of us. There's different levels because Princess Marcus has set it all up with uh, varying rewards and things. So do have a look. Do join us. There's uh, an exclusive Facebook group as well and you can be part of all of it. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.